Like most preachers, this is the sort of text that I normally avoid like the plague. Not because it's especially controversial or theologically problematic, but because it is impossibly dense and difficult to read. And frankly, not all that interesting to listen to. What you're about to hear is the genealogical record of Jesus of Nazareth, according to the Gospel of Matthew. It consists of no fewer than 42 generations, and you'll notice that it's almost entirely men, as it's a patrilineal genealogy, which perhaps is problematic in its way. Now, you're probably wondering what changed my mind. Why, if I've avoided this text for all of these years, and why, if it's so hard to digest, am I preaching on it today? Why are we hearing it in church? Well, it occurred to me that we tend to focus almost exclusively on Jesus in the Advent season, for good reason, but we ignore many of the folks who contribute to his story and make it possible. And while I hesitate to call these marginalized voices in this case, being as they are mostly kings and patriarchs on this list, they are marginalized in the telling of Jesus' story. And if these so-called great men could be pushed to the sidelines so easily, relegated to a text that no one bothers to read or wants to listen to, what does that say about folks who are already ignored to begin with? And with that, I turn it over to Karen for this challenging reading from the Gospel of Matthew. The reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salitiel, and Salitiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to J David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 
14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Friends, let us pray. Everlasting and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The table is where generations gather. On ordinary days, families might have dinner together. On Thanksgiving, much of the time, the table grows longer. Grandparents, cousins, aunts and uncles, in-laws and family friends converge there to break bread and to share gratitude and to avoid talking about politics. But for all of the folks at that table, the children are often missing, relegated to the so-called kids' table at the far side of the room. Now, if I sound like I'm being critical of this practice, I'm really not. I personally loved sitting at the kids' table when I was young. The memories are vivid. We'd spend every Thanksgiving at my Nana's house, greeted when we walked in the door by the smell of roasting turkey, homemade stuffing, and fresh-baked dinner rolls. No one in my family was especially interested in football, which meant that my older brother and I had the only TV in the house to ourselves. We'd hook up our old Nintendo, and we'd play Super Mario Brothers and Ninja Gaiden with our dad, while the other adults busied themselves in the kitchen. And when it was time to eat, we would begrudgingly turn off the Nintendo and make our way over to a little card table that had been set up alongside the longer one. And like I said, that suited my brother and I just fine. We were the only children in the family. We didn't have any immediate cousins to speak of. And most of the time, unlike my own kids, uh, my brother and I got along just great. Uh, we'd talk about video games and cartoons and whatever else interested us at the time, which would have bored the grown-ups, while they had their own conversations about things that we really couldn't care less about. It was a win-win solution. Now, the only downside to the whole arrangement that I could see at the time was that the service was a bit lacking. <laughs> Being on the sidelines as we were, if I needed a juice refill or a second helping of turkey or stuffing, it could be difficult to get my mother's attention. My brother and I used to have this tape recorder uh, and we must have been messing around with it during Thanksgiving dinner one year because the tape resurfaced many years later and demonstrated this very problem. On the recording, you can hear a bunch of folks talking and laughing in the background at the grown-up Thanksgiving table. And then you hear my little voice just creeping into the mix. Can I please have some more orange juice? Poor little Seth. There is no response. The older folks keep on chatting, oblivious to my plea. Again, I ask for some more orange juice, a little more loudly this time, and again, no one seems to hear me. Growing increasingly frustrated and desperate, I ask again, a hint of panic in my voice. Nothing seems to get their attention, and so as any kid in my shoes would do, I finally 
scream at the top of my lungs, can I have some more orange juice, please? And on the tape, everything suddenly grows silent. All laughter and conversation grind to a halt. And then you hear my mother's voice. Well, she says, you don't have to yell. <laughs> all in all, though, customer service notwithstanding, I was just glad that I didn't have to listen to whatever it was all the grown-ups were talking about. I could catch just enough of the conversation to know how painfully boring it was. It seemed to consist largely of stories and gossip about distant relatives that I'd seldom met or never heard of. Did you hear that John and Melinda bought a house in upstate New York? How's Aunt Rose doing these days? Is she still alive? Has anyone talked to Chicky lately? How about Bess? Well, for my part, being about seven years old, if it didn't involve ninjas or superheroes, I really couldn't be bothered. As a 42-year-old man, I'm afraid that's still largely the case. <laughs> I do love stories, but I tend to gravitate towards grander narratives, you know, the kind that shape the course of history. The intimate details of ordinary lives didn't interest me much when I was younger. I didn't care about my distant relatives or my ancestors. When I used to visit my grandmother on my dad's side uh, in New Jersey, she'd sit my brother down, my brother and I down, both of us, for lengthy presentations about our family tree going back some 500 years. For a kid, it was excruciating. I can recall that after one of these sessions, she began an hour-long monologue with my older brother about the joy of collecting stamps, which I narrowly escaped by feigning illness and hiding in the bathroom for the next hour with a comic book. And you know, when it comes to these genealogical texts in our scripture, I think a lot of us kind of feel the same way, don't we? I mean, yeah, we're up for biblical stories about Jesus and miracles, heroes, angels, but if we're being honest, do we really care who begat who? Who are these people? And why should we care? Well, some of these names we do know and recognize, and they did lead pretty interesting lives. We recognize Abraham, who saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and nearly sacrificed his son, Isaac. We know Jacob, who once wrestled with an angel and whose sons gave rise to the 12 tribes of Israel. We know King David, of course, as the author's intent is to connect Jesus to the Davidic bloodline. Never mind that the bloodline actually leads to Joseph, who isn't really supposed to be Jesus' biological father, and I'm guessing there's a pretty interesting story there. But we're not going to get into that today. Beyond a handful of names, though, the rest are probably unfamiliar to anyone who isn't a Hebrew Bible scholar. Jesse, Rehoboam, Zerubbabel. It's tempting to gloss over these guys and get to the action of the nativity, to treat them as little more than connective tissue in a genealogical record, inconsequential characters in someone else's story, rather than real people with lives and stories of their own. But they do have stories of their own, and they each shaped history in their own way, some large, some small. Jesse's life might have seemed ordinary at best. He was 
a simple farmer and sheep herder from Bethlehem, living his days out quietly with his wife and eight sons. But Jesse was also the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, whose torrid romance is illustrated in the book of Ruth. And he was the father of David, a ruddy young kid that would grow up to become Israel's most beloved king. His name would be immortalized in Scripture when the prophet Isaiah said that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Rehoboam was the son of King Solomon who built the temple in Jerusalem with his vast riches. Solomon had begun a number of other large-scale construction projects there as well, which would change the face of the city forever. And when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took the throne and continued his father's work, but he, he lacked the vision and wisdom of his father. He raised taxes obscenely and treated his laborers poorly, increasing their work while cutting their pay. And eventually his poor leadership resulted in a full-blown civil war that lasted throughout his 17-year reign. Generations later, the Babylonians would seize Jerusalem and deport her citizens, only to be later conquered by uh, the Persians under Cyrus the Great, uh, who let them return home to Jerusalem from their exile. And Zerubbabel, another fellow on this list, was designated as governor of the region and directly oversaw the reconstruction of the temple uh, that his ancestor Solomon had built. More than just another name on a long list, he was instrumental in establishing Second Temple Judaism and thereby setting the stage for the drama that unfolds in Jesus' time. This genealogy that Matthew presents us is so much more than just a long, boring list of names that are hard to pronounce. They are stories, each and every one of them, upon which all of their stories depend. Jesus may well be the protagonist of the larger narrative, but his story isn't the only one that matters. After my grandmother in New Jersey passed away a few years ago, I finally developed a little bit of curiosity about my own family tree. And for all the time that she spent poring over its details when I was a little boy, there was only one name that I could remember. Lieutenant Colonel John Jarbeau, born in 1619 in Dijon, France, who settled in Maryland as a member of the local militia. For his service, he was granted 100 acres of land and later became the sheriff of St. Mary's County. He was a devout Catholic and apparently supported a rebellion against the local Puritan government in 1655. Jarbeau was apparently quite successful. By the time of his death, he had managed to acquire over 1,500 acres of land, and according to local records, at least 56,657 pounds of tobacco. I haven't seen an ounce of it, but... But it doesn't seem like my ancestor came by it honestly. His reputation was a bit murky, for one thing. Old legal documents refer to him, quote, as a scoundrel. And in 1650, a man named Cecilius Calvert sued Jarbo, demanding that he apologize or be punished for his, quote, contemptuous and unmannerly behavior towards one William Stone. 
Maybe Stone had it coming. I don't know. But worse still, a little more digging reveals the source of Jarbeau's tobacco fortune. He, was also, he also owned a plantation and six slaves. I'd always kind of assumed there'd be something like this in my family tree if I looked hard enough, but this is the first time that I've ever confirmed it. Naturally, my grandmother left that out of her glorious retelling of Lieutenant Colonel Jean Jarbeau and his adventures. It's a stark reminder, though, that some people's stories are prized above others. With just a little bit of help from Google, I could quickly find all of this information about a relatively obscure white man who lived in the 17th century. But no amount of digging could reveal the names of his slaves or a single detail about their lives. That's how our world is, sadly. We act as though giants walk among us, as if some men, and it's usually men, have stories that matter more than others. Everyone wants to hear about the latest controversy that Elon Musk is stirring up, but we don't hear as much about the lives that are affected by it, people who lose their jobs or their fortunes on one of his whims. During Advent, we wait for Jesus, but we tend to neglect a lot of the other folks in the narrative. Mary and Joseph's parents, for instance, where are they in all of this? Or the innkeeper in Bethlehem, or the shepherds that attended Jesus' birth. We don't know anything about these people. Some of them aren't even mentioned at all. Even Matthew's patrilineal genealogy, our long texts this morning, neglects to mention, oh, I don't know, most of the women who gave birth to these guys. We hear about Abraham, but where's Sarah? We hear about Isaac, but nothing about Rebekah. Jacob certainly didn't birth the 12 tribes of Israel by himself, but we hear nothing about his wives, Rachel or Leah, or his concubines, Bilhah or Zilpah. And a lot of the, the mothers in this genealogy are never even mentioned in the older uh, scriptures. Their stories are lost, forgotten, though they were instrumental in leading to Jesus' birth. Like I said before, I understand why we have a kid's table at Thanksgiving dinner, but maybe there's something to be said for gathering at one table where all of our stories are shared. We tend to marginalize the narratives that don't shape markets or history, at least not in an obvious way. Black and brown voices, queer voices, women's voices, children's voices are ignored until they cry out in desperation. Well, society tells them, you don't have to yell, don't they? Too often we ignore the voices calling from the proverbial kids' table asking to be heard. And so this Advent, as we consider the stories we pass on from generation to generation. Let's not gloss over the ones that others might have forgotten. Because every story is our story, a thread in the tapestry of humanity. And at Jesus' table, there is room for everyone. There is room for every story.